You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. So we are continuing our study of 1 John, right? And again, I didn't, we didn't get any graphics done for this, but I've decided to call this series Simple Truths. Uh, because much of what John is teaching us here uh, isn't necessarily earth-shattering in the sense that we've never heard it before. Um, but, but again, it's just simple truths for us to learn, to meditate, meditate on, and remember. Um, it's stuff we've already heard, but we're constantly in need of reminding uh, because God's people tend to be dumb. Uh, just laying that out there, that's why the Bible repeats itself all the time. Because God knows we're not going to listen the first 50 times. So he's going to say the same thing over and over and over and over again. Um, So just something to keep in mind, Uh, I read a quote from John Calvin, something to keep in mind as we go through this book, um, because this book actually repeats itself multiple times as well, is this. Calvin said, we have not come to the preaching merely to hear what we do not know, but to be incited to do our duty, right? So we haven't just come here to sit under the ministry of the Word of God to hear things that we didn't know or learn new concepts that we didn't have that knowledge of before we walked in but to even hear things that we have heard hundreds of times and be incited to do our duty toward God, to walk in obedience to Him, to walk in holiness to the Lord. Uh, so tonight we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Um, last week, in, in the three verses before this, last week we saw John give us a lot of encouragement if you're a believer. Um, and now this week, uh, I'm not going to lie to you, John is breaking out the big guns. Right, like this one's going to hurt a little bit, just laying that out there. This is a sucker punch sermon, I feel like, in some ways, because uh, John lays down some really raw and hard truth for us. Uh, John is going to discuss the love of the world. Uh, the first, first thing he says in this passage is, do not love the world. All right, so before we get into the text, as Christians, we are constantly commanded by God all throughout Scripture, from Genesis on, to keep ourselves from being worldly. All right, now that word worldly is a very old sounding word, right? If you grew up in a Baptist church, right? Anyone ever hear that those sermons grown up, right? Worldliness, things like that. Uh, it's an old sounding word. It's one that's not used much anymore in preaching, and that's probably why the church in the West has become so worldly, if we're going to be completely honest. Um, but worldliness is a temptation that each Christian uh, has to face on a regular basis. As believers, we are constantly surrounded uh, with encouragement from the world to forsake the commands of God and to live our own way. Right? We are constantly bombarded daily to disregard the clear teaching of Scripture on theology, morality, salvation, and love for people. Constantly. Right? I mean, the stuff with the, the transgender thing, the denial that God has created men to be men and women to be women. Right? That's a theological, moral truth that's being assaulted. Right? That's just one example of many. Right? That we live in a plural, pluralistic society that says all religions really worship the same God and all lead to the same place in the end, which I can agree with partially. They all lead to hell except for Christianity. Right? So I am pluralistic in that, I guess. Uh, but again, so we're constantly being assaulted. The culture is always telling us Things that are just contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. Um, All the time, the world tries to entice us to adopt its perspectives on life and its perspectives on what really matters and to deny what the Bible teaches us. And here, in this passage we're going to read, John's words stand as a warning to anyone who would succumb to the temptation of the world. John, in essence, if I could sum up 
uh, a good portion of what he's going to teach us this evening, is that there is eternal life for the one who follows God and eternal damnation for the rest of the world. It's very simple. Um, so to give you guys a little bit of a roadmap map uh, to where you're going to go, if you're like me, I, I appreciate this from time to time, give you guys a little bit of an idea, an outline of where we're going to go. First, we're going to talk about what it means to love the world. Second, we're going to talk about the wickedness of the world. Is the world really as bad uh, as John says? Thirdly, we're going to talk about how the love for God is exclusive, that you cannot love both God and the world. Um, then we're going to talk about what makes up the world's mentality, right? What is John telling us specifically to avoid about the world? And we're going to talk about why we shouldn't love the world. And then lastly, we're going to apply this text in a couple of different ways to the believer. And then lastly, apply this text to the unbeliever. So, again, a bit of context. Just again, we don't want to look at verses isolated. A bit of context before we read the passage. So we looked at last week. Verses 12 through 14, that John has laid down some gospel truths for us, right? Little children, I write these things to you because your sins are forgiven for his sake. Uh, young or Fathers, because you know the one who is from the beginning. Young men, because you have overcome the evil one, right? We looked at that last week. So John lays down and roots us in these gospel truths that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Not because of anything you and I do, not because of our obedience to God, not because of our sanctification or because of our holiness or any of that stuff, but solely for the sake of Jesus Christ who suffered in our place and lived a righteous life in our place to grant us that righteousness. Solely for his sake, not for ours, our sins are forgiven. He also rooted us in the truth that through Christ we have come to know the Father. That God the Father actually loves us. That we are no longer enemies of God, but children of God. He reminded us that we know the one who is from the beginning, which is to say we know a God who is always faithful to his people, who is sovereign over all things that come to pass in our lives, and he holds us near to his heart and and protects us and keeps us. And then lastly, John reminds us that we have overcome in Christ, we have overcome Satan, both eternally in the final analysis and now, day to day, we have overcome the devil because Christ has overcome the devil on our behalf. So now after reminding us and rooting us in what God has already done for us, John now gives his first command to us. If you read this letter carefully, John has not told us one explicit command to do something or to keep from something. This is John's first one, which I love how God does this. God never just tells us to do this and do that or to abstain from this and stop doing that without first rooting us in what he has already done for us. All of our obedience is always going to be motivated by gratitude for Christ crucified in our place. That's what God's design is. We're never obeying God in order to save ourselves. We obey God because we're people who have already been saved by Christ. It's never to earn his favor. It's because we've already been recipients of his grace. And I love how John does that here. But essentially, the reason why I wanted to recap that is because I think that John is wanting to show us that what the world offers us cannot compare to what we have in Jesus Christ. So I just wanted to bring those gospel blessings of knowing the Father, the forgiveness of sins, and so on. I wanted to bring those back up into your mind so that we can then see that everything the world offers us pales in comparison. So, that was kind of a long intro, right? Let's get into it. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, then we'll pray and we'll dissect this line by line. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for every person that's gathered here to sit under the teaching of the word. God, give me the words that you want me to say, and if I say anything contrary to scripture, I pray that people would disregard it. Holy Spirit, please do a sovereign act of mercy this evening. Bring someone from spiritual death to life. For the people who already know Jesus, make them more like him. Christ did not love the world in the sense that John's telling us to to not love the world. God, make us more like him. Spirit, if you don't do a work of grace here this evening, all of our effort is in vain. If you don't come and do something, we can do nothing. Please bless us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so the first line, do not love the world or the things in the world. Let's start by talking about what John doesn't mean, right? Because I'm sure this verse has been used out of context to justify all kinds of just stupid stuff. Right? Just call it what it is. Um, first, John is not telling us to hate the created order, right? John is not telling us to hate the physical creation around us, although I detest going outside Unlike the resident hippies, Chris and Cassandra Beal, nature hiking, I don't understand how you do that. Um, it's all fallen, man. You know what I mean? Like, sin has entered the world and corrupted it, so whatever. Uh, but no, he's not telling us to hate the created order. Um, because the created order all points to God. The Bible says that, that the world and, and, and everything in it declares the handiwork of God. Right? It declares his glory. So we should enjoy the physical world around us in as much as it points us to the one who created it. Right? So you can love your pets and you can love being outside if you're a freak of nature, I suppose. Um, right? So you can enjoy the created order. Uh, second, John is not telling us to never enjoy anything in the world. Right? A lot of people in the first few centuries in, in Christianity really misunderstood John here. And that's where there's these people called um, aesthetics, I believe is how you pronounce it. It's not spelled like the, the, why Stephen works out for aesthetics. It's not spelled like that. I think it's spelled differently. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's these people who would be like desert dwellers, and they would refuse to have uh, anything to do with the world around them. They would eat really bland food. They would never drink wine or anything like that because they thought that everything of the world was horrible and terrible. Uh, that's not what John is telling us to do. He's not telling us to never enjoy anything. Right? God gives us things that are pleasurable in this world, in this life, as gifts, gifts to us. Right? Good food, right? Good drinks, good times, right? Sex with your spouse, uh, having friends that you can joke around with, good films, things like that, right? We can enjoy all of those things. They're gifts from God, and we should enjoy them. Uh, So He's not telling us not to enjoy anything in the world. Uh, And lastly, He is not telling us to hate the unbeliever. Right? That would be really ironic because this is the same John who wrote John 3.16, For God so loved the world. Right? God loved unbelievers so much that he sent his son that whoever would believe on his son would not perish but inherit eternal life. Right? So he's not talking about telling us to hate the unbeliever. Um, again, God shows love toward the unbeliever, and we are called to love all people, including our enemies. Right? So we're never allowed to hate anybody. We can hate what they do. We can even pray that justice be done to them, but we can't hate them as people. All right, so what does he mean by love for the world? Well, it's good to know what the word world means, right? The, the original word was cosmos, 
right? It means it has many meanings, honestly, and context determines which one. Uh, but here in this context, that word for world means the worldly system and values that oppose God. That's what he's talking about. Right? Do not love a worldly system. Do not love a system and do not love values that are in opposition to God. And just to, to, to clarify a little bit more, whenever he says love, right, to love another person is to do an act of good for them, right, to act in their best interest. But to love the world in this context means to devote yourself to something, right, to wholeheartedly devote yourself to pursue for pleasure, to make it your top priority. That's what he's saying. So, so if I was going to put all these definitions together, he's telling us, do not devote yourself to, align yourself with, or enjoy anything that is opposed to the will or commands of God. That's essentially what he's saying in this first sentence. Do not devote yourself to anything that is contrary to God. This includes attitudes, Actions, philosophies, worldviews, religions, politics, speech, activities, anything whatsoever that goes against what God has revealed in Scripture. Again, John is just laying out really simple truths. So to love the world is to be taken up with all that is in the world instead of seeking to know and obey the God who made you and gives you the breath to live. That's what he's talking about. So John is telling us to absolutely refuse to engage in a corrupt world system that hates God. So some of you may be thinking, all right, and I know I used to think this whenever I was a new Christian, is the world really that bad? Right? Does the world really hate and oppose God? And I would just ask you to spend 10 minutes watching the news um, to see if the world really is as bad as the Bible says it is, but we're not here to talk about the news. The short answer is yes. Yes, the world is as bad as John says. The world really does hate God and oppose God, even if the world and the people of the world won't admit that they hate God. The Bible says that they do. So let's just look at some portions of Scripture that talk about the world and the mentality of the people in the world that don't know Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, this same John says this, We know that we are from God, the believer is from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's a reference to Satan. right? So this world, and this is a strange concept for us, this world in a sense, and we'll get into it in the months to come, in a sense this world is indeed governed, governed by Satan. And Satan is opposed to and hates God. I think we can all agree on that. And this world lies in his power. God is ultimately sovereign over the devil, but in a sense the devil does govern this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 This is what he's talking to people who are now saved, but he's describing who they were before they knew Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the, like the rest of mankind. So the world is guided by Satan. The world is led by Satan, blinded by Satan, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians, so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. So he blinds dead people, and they lie in his power. Doing his bidding. He is at work in them, and therefore they are under the wrath of God. Children of wrath. Just to drive this point home again, Romans 8, 7. This is said over all of the people in the world. For the mind that is set on the flesh 
is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That right there is, the, is the, to me, the best summary of the mindset of the unbelieving world system. It's not set on the spirit. The mind is set on the flesh. It's set on what they're naturally born with. So the mindset of the unbelieving world system is hostility to God. That's hatred. The world hates God. It's in constant rebellion. Let me just give you a litmus test if you don't believe me. Jesus Christ himself says, If you love me, keep my commandments. So if you live in unrepentant breaking of Christ's commandments, you can say what you want, but by definition you would then hate Christ. To love Christ is to obey Him, so to disobey Him is to hate Him, no matter how you want to justify your life. If you don't walk in obedience and faith to Jesus, you hate Him. He does not leave any middle ground. He says, whoever does not gather with me scatters against me. No middle ground for us. The world is in constant rebellion against the God who made them. But I just want to highlight the, the I, I, took, I took time for those verses because I want us to highlight the absolute corruption and wickedness of the world because I want to I say this to the believers that are here. There's nothing there for you. There's nothing in what we just described. Being led by Satan, being hostile to God, refusing to obey the commandments of God, and being in constant rebellion to God, there's nothing there for us. There's nothing for us to find beautiful in that kind of a system. There's nothing lovely in that system. It's hostility and rebellion against the God that we love. We must hate that system. We must not give in and partake of that which defies the rule and reign of the God who saved us. So some of you may be thinking, I always anticipate what you might be thinking, that I don't ever really love the world. I would never love that kind of, a, of, of thinking. I would never love that kind of mentality of hostility towards God. Let me ask you this. Do you sin? <laughs> yes. Yes, you do. Because everyone does. Minute to minute, I would argue, everyone is sinning in some way, shape, or form because the law is so all-encompassing. Everyone sins. And every single act of sin, no matter how you want to try to justify it, is a rejection of the authority of God. It is partaking in that exact system that rebels and defies the authority of God. So to partake in that, in that system is to pursue it. It's to love that system. It's in essence to put a seal of approval on that rebellion because you have engaged in that rebellion yourself. Every time we sin, we show love for the world and hatred towards God. But let's finish up this verse 15. John says, If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him, right? So John then, after telling us not to love the world, John then just lays down a fact about those who love the world. They don't love the Father, right? The love of the Father is the love for the Father. You can't love God and love the world. It's impossible. That's what John is saying. If you love the world, you do not love the Father. Jesus Christ says the exact same thing in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right? So the same applies to everything. That love for God is exclusive. 
is what John's getting at here. There is to be no other God in our life, right? Think of the first commandment. That's why we had you guys read that catechism. The first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And that doesn't mean in a ranking of hierarchy that you have a lesser God under him. Literally, that means you shall have no gods before my face. In my presence, none whatsoever. God says he is to be our top priority. There is to be no other love that we have in the universe that that can even rival or match whatsoever our love for him. That is the first commandment. God demands wholehearted, singular devotion to himself with no rivals. Jesus says this about being a disciple. Remember, Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, he's not literally telling you to hate your parents and hate your spouse. He's saying that your love for him must supersede your love for everything else. That by comparison, your love for your children and your love for your spouse and your love for even your own life appear to be hatred because you love him so much more. He said, if you don't love him like that, you're not worthy of being his disciple. He must be our true love if we're going to be Christians. And then James, the, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, says this in chapter 4 of his letter. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He calls us adulterous people. If we try to befriend the world, if we try to pursue the things of the world that are in opposition to God, because he calls us adulteresses or adulterous people, because we spiritually cheat on God when we live at peace with the world and submit to it. We're being unfaithful to him, our great husband, Jesus. So again, I wanted to hit those examples because the scriptures are just littered with God's unyielding demand that he be the first priority in our life, period, Littered with the demand that we would submit to him and his will over everything else in the universe. Again, I can't stress this enough. Love for God is exclusive. We cannot be devoted to the sinful pleasures and values of the world and love God. For example, my wife is sitting in the back. I cannot say to her, Autumn, I love you. I'm getting points for this. With all of my heart and soul, I love you. And at the same time, Maria, I love you with all of my heart and soul. I hope David didn't warn you. I actually cleared that through him before I did that because he may be small, but he could beat me up and down the street. Um, (laughs) Right? I cannot say to both Autumn and Maria that I love them with all of my heart. It is not possible. How much greater for God then? You cannot love another the way that you're to love God. You cannot devote yourself to another the way that God demands you devote yourself to Him. I just want to take a a minute... um, and, and just make a side note of this. I understand that I'm preaching really hard. Right? Like, I get that. Um, this is not at all to say that Christians are never enticed by the world. This is not to say that Christians never sin. That would be stupid. John actually says earlier in chapter 2, if anyone says that he doesn't sin, he's, he makes God out to be a liar and doesn't know God. Right? So we're not, uh, not going to do that. We're not going to say we don't sin. Because uh, if we do, that means we're not Christians, which would be hilarious. Um, We do indeed sometimes become enticed by the world. We do indeed sin, even on a regular basis. But that is not the life pattern that we have. The life of the Christian is a pattern of repentance, 
renewing of our faithfulness to God and despising our sin. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Christ has been the satisfier of God's wrath on our behalf. That Christ is our great high priest and our great advocate before the Father. It's because of Him that we receive forgiveness of sins. That we repent, we renew our faith. Because we do indeed stumble. We do indeed become enticed by the world from time to time. I don't want you guys to think that I'm preaching Christian perfectionism because that is heresy. I'm not doing that. But what I'm getting at is John is calling for our wholehearted rejection of all that is contrary to God, both public and private. Right? Let, me, let me say something real quick about all that is contrary to God, public and private. If you stand up to defend the Word of God in public, again, on whatever moral issues are, are being corrupted in our day, human sexuality, marriage, all of those things, and then in your life, in your private, personal life, you partake in the world system, you're a hypocrite. Period. We cannot thunder the law and gospel of God in the square and then behind closed doors live like the rest of the world. It's absolutely not possible. Absolutely not permitted. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for as much. But God is calling us to a wholehearted rejection of all that is contrary to Him in an unyielding embrace of God and His way and His will. Verse 16 For all that is in the world, so now he's going to explain further. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John is telling us that that all that is in the world is not from God. But he begins to open up that concept for us and shows us what makes up the world's mentality and what he's telling us to avoid. And he gives us three things, right? Some, Some theologians made me laugh. They call it the unholy trinity. I don't know, it made me laugh. Sorry, whatever, I'm lame. Um, The first one is this, the desires of the flesh. Simply put, that is any, it's a very broad category, uh, that is any sinful craving that we have. That's not an explicit reference to sexual sin, right? Um, But it's any sinful craving that we have that comes from our sinful nature, right? The desires of your sinful nature, your flesh. We would call this inward sins, right? These are sins that you're naturally prone to. Things that you naturally want that are contrary to God. The second thing is the desires of the eyes. Which, uh, that one's a little bit harder for me to explain. It, it's uh, like looking around at the world and what it offers and desiring its sinful pleasures. Right? It's like being tempted from without rather than within. From outside of you. Where again, you look around at the world and you see something that you, like you see a sin you didn't know you wanted to commit until you saw it. And you think, well that looks good to me. Let's pursue that one. And the third one, the pride of life, is the proud and vain pursuit of those worldly desires and pleasures. And I think that John uses the word pride there because we are, whenever we pursue things that are contrary to God's word, we are asserting our independence from God in order to get those things. Think about it. I am not bound by what God says. I am independent from Him. That's essentially what you're saying whenever you pursue things that are contrary to God. That is the definition of vanity and pride, that you would rebel against the Creator who made you. So to sum those three things up into a couple of sentences, I think that the world's mentality is this. Tell me if this sounds familiar. I want that. It seems good to me or looks good to me. So I'm going to get that thing or do that action. 
I want it. It seems good to me. Even if I have to oppose God's will in order to do so. Because I do what I want, how I want, when I want, and God has no authority over me. Because I have taken His place in my life. That is the mentality of the world. Sin and the world would un-God God if they could. That's what sin is, essentially. The declaration of independence from God, that He has no authority whatsoever over, over us. The world would un-God God. It would dethrone Him if it were at all possible. That is the nature of all sin. That is what we're doing when we sin. That's what God says we're doing when we sin, and He gets the final say on what we're doing. John is saying in this verse that all of that thinking is not of God. It's of the world. It is the antithesis of God's will. Because it's not His will. It's our will. Whenever we live like the world, we're not saying Thy will be done. We're saying My will be done. And we're attempting to dethrone Him in our rebellion. Though it's what the world is seeking to do. And this is exactly why John says that you can't love the world and love God. You can't seek to dethrone an un-God God while saying you love Him at the same time. It's impossible. It's inconsistent. It's like me telling Autumn I love her and then trying to murder her three minutes later. It makes no sense. I don't love her then. But then John, and I love this, is my favorite verse in this entire passage is the last one. John then goes on to give the reason. He's not giving us a reason why we shouldn't love the world yet. He just laid down truths about loving the world. He tells us why we ought not love the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's passing away. This world is passing away. We often get so caught up in the world that we forget that. Do we not? day-to-day life, the rat race, whatever you want to say, we forget that this whole world is passing away. Just let that thought sink in for a moment. It's all going to burn. Second Peter tells us as much. It's all going to burn down. So why would you devote yourself and love something that won't last? Why would you do that? Why would you devote yourselves to the pleasures of the world when they won't last? This world is passing away, as in it is currently passing away. All of of human history is driving to a point, and, and, and that's the return of Christ, where Christ comes back for His bride. And we forget that. Let me throw this out. If the world is passing away, it won't last. And because it won't last, that points us to a truth that we need to remember. A temporary thing cannot satisfy. A temporary thing cannot satisfy you. It was never meant to eternally satisfy you. The temporary was never meant for that. That's why God made it temporary and transient. It was never meant to satisfy eternally. But here is the lie that Satan will tell you. Here is the lie that the world will tell you. It's that that relationship... That car, that money, that person, that party, the the sex, the house, the retirement, the job, the pursuit of this sin or that sin will make you whole. That's the lie that the world would tell you. 
But it cannot. The richest man in the world wants one more dollar. The person who has everything wants one more upgrade. One more vehicle. The person that you think completes you will eventually let you down because you're in relationship with another sinner who's going to sin against you and you're putting God-sized pressure on that person. They can't deliver on that. It can't do it. It's a lie. All of the temporary pleasures in life, furthermore, are, are meant to point us to the gift giver. The one who gave you those pleasures. The one, according to the psalmist, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Every good thing we can enjoy is meant to point us to that. But those things in and of themselves cannot satisfy you. Because they do not last. Furthermore, the fact that this world is passing away and will finally burn down is proof that it is under currently and will finally be consumed by the judgment of God. It's passing away. Because God will not, please hear me on this if you're not a believer, God will not forever tolerate a system that hates Him. He will not. He will destroy it. He will burn it down. And His wrath will come upon all who are aligned with that system. Like John said in Ephesians, or Paul said in Ephesians 2, they are children of wrath. People destined for the fires of hell. God's judgment will come upon all who are aligned with that system. So let me pose this. I have an illustration for you. Let me pose this question to you. Let's say I have a mansion with everything that you could ever want in it. Quite literally, everything. All the money you could ever want, all the clothing you could ever want, they're they're personally tailored to you, all the food you could ever want, right? This is a hermit's dream. You'll never have to leave this house again unless you want to. Literally everything you could ever want for the rest of your life. And to get it, you have to trade me everything that you own, including the clothes off your back. You're going to walk into this mansion stark naked, right? But there's clothes in there for you, so it's not that big of a deal. But you have to trade me everything for it. But here's the catch. I'm burning it down tomorrow at 5 p.m. and there's nothing that you can do to stop me. Who will trade me everything they have for a house I will burn down tomorrow at 5? No one. Because you would be a fool. You would be an utter fool to do so. Jesus says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You're a fool to pursue the world. It will cost you your very soul. It's all burning down. It's a fool's bargain. But John says this. On the converse, this is the hope of the believer. That the one who does God's will lives forever. That's not a reference to meriting your salvation by obedience. The one who does God's will is another way to say the Christian. The believer. Because the believer is the one who follows after God in the face of the world. The believer is the one who rejects sin. The believer is the one who rejects the attitudes and worldview of the world. The believer is the one who trusts in God. But hear me on this. We will not live forever because of our obedience to God. That's not John's point. 
The Christian, never forget this on your life. The Christian lives forever because Jesus Christ has reconciled us to the God that we have rebelled against. Because Jesus Christ did not love the world in the sense that John is telling us not to love the world. Because Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed God. And He did it in place of all those who would believe on Him. In order to credit us with His righteousness. Because Christ rejected the world in all of its pleasures in, 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 in order to obey God fully. That's how we're saved. Because Christ took the sins of all who would believe on Him on Himself and paid the debt that the sinner owed to God. Because of Christ's obedience and Christ's suffering in place of sinners, that's why we will never pass away. Not because of our obedience, but because of what Christ has done. We will live because all of our pursuit of the world and all of our sin has been paid for by Christ. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. This is the promise. Though we die, we will live forever with Christ. We will not pass away like the world. We will not pass away under the wrath of God because Christ has suffered the wrath of God in our place. That's the good news. This world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So as we move to application, I encourage you to commit this text to memory. Commit it to memory and meditate on its weight. But I have three things by way of application. The first is this, Christian. Consider this thought. Christ died to pay the debt of our love for the world. He suffered and died because we loved the world formerly. Because we, from time to time in our daily lives, still continue to love the world in some way, shape, or form. He died to pay that debt. How then can we love that which our Savior shed His blood over? How can we still devote ourselves to it? We must hate it. The price for our salvation and redemption was too high for us to continue on loving it. But consider this truth about yourself, Christian, and be encouraged to fight worldliness. Galatians 6.14, Paul says this. This is beautiful. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Paul's saying, Christian, the moment you repented and believed on Christ, the world is dead to you now. And the world counts you as dead to it. You're no longer friends anymore. You're enemies now. You're dead to the world, and the world is dead to you. There is nothing there for you anymore. This is truth to push us on. And then Christ gives us encouragement in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We will have tribulation. The fight to keep from worldliness will not be easy, but Christ again reminds us He has overcome the world already on our behalf. Another thing for the Christian, a second thing. John John Stott has some great words of wisdom for us to keep in mind as we consider not being influenced by the world. He said the Christian is to be neither conformed to the world nor contaminated by it. He is not to escape out of it. He is to remain in it. He is to be unworldly without becoming otherworldly, living in it without being of it. Right? So this 
sermon is not a call uh, for what we used to call bomb shelter theology at Rev. I'm not telling you to go hide in a bunker and avoid the world and never engage any of the, of, of the worldly positions, to never go around unbelievers. I'm not telling you to never go into a bar and to stay away from everything that opposes God. I'm not saying to do that. This sermon is a call to engage the world with the gospel. This sermon is a call to go to the world with the proclamation of Christ crucified for sinners while refusing to let ourselves be influenced by it. That's the call here. We continue to push and strive to advance the kingdom of God on earth. We do not retreat ever. Ever. And lastly, I'll address the unbeliever. This world is passing away. I want you to understand that and get that into your mind. This world is passing away, and you are too. You are too. Whether you die or whether Christ returns, the world is passing away, and you are as well. And as of now, you stand under the righteous wrath of the God that you have sinned against. And there is nothing keeping you from his wrath. You have no shield. You have no advocate. You have no protection from the unbridled wrath of God. But God is offering you mercy. God is offering you pardon for all of your offenses, for all of your sin, for all of your love for the world. God is right now graciously calling you to repent and to trust in Christ's person and work for your salvation. It's mercy to you. But nevertheless, if you refuse, you indeed, along with the world, will fall under God's wrath and hell for all of eternity. But I can't stress to you the fact that God is being gracious to you now. Trust in Christ. Believers, you get the final word. Let's leave here with a renewed resolve to love our God, as we read in Deuteronomy 6, with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our might. For this God has saved us out of the world by the work of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for John's faithfulness to pen what you had him pen. God, protect us from worldliness. Help us to fight our sin. Make the believer more like your son, rejecting the world and all of its pleasures in order to do the will of God. Let us say along with Jesus that our food and our drink is to do your will. God, help us to be in the world and not of the world as Christ was. Let us shine forth the truth of the gospel to the unbelieving world around us. Let us engage the world without becoming contaminated and polluted by it. Sanctify us. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Grant us repentance, Father. Holy Spirit, please bring someone from death to life. God, we worship you because of what you've done for us, because you are worthy, because your Son has bled for us. In his name, amen.